Heavenly Father, we have risen this morning to come and cry to you for help as we seek your face. Lord, we pray that you'd be helping us by your spirit to put our hope in your word. Oh, Lord, we look at all the other ways that people uh, seek salvation in this world, whether it be reason, tradition, experience and feelings, and they put their hope in such failings. Uh, Lord, we pray that that would not characterise us this morning, but we would be ones who put our hope in the word of God. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel, which we picked up again, and we've been looking at how the Lord has been transitioning the kingdom of Israel to a kingship. Uh, That's what the book of 1 Samuel is really about. The Israelites had come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, the great prophet, that entered the promised land under the leadership of the commander, Joshua, and then they'd been looked after by a number of judges, and you can read about those different judges in the book of Judges. And then we've been seeing how the people have desired to have a king like the other nations, and God gave them a king, King Saul, but King Saul continued to turn away from God's ways. And so now we see this transition that's not just happening uh, from a judge to a king, but from one king to another king, from King Saul's family to King David's family. And that's what we've been studying where we picked up again. We had a bit of a break after we finished chapter 15, and then we've come back uh, since our series in Colossians to chapter 16. We saw the anointing of David. We saw uh, last time about the way that the Spirit of the Lord had been taken from Saul, King Saul, and we... uh, examined what it means that an evil spirit came to torment Saul last week. And this week we see David rise to the forefront in this battle with the Philistines. The Philistines, of course, we're going to see again and again. They were another nation that had come over the sea and they were on the coast of Israel and they continued to try to move inland against the Israelites and take over their land. And again and again, the Israelites had to fight them and push them back to the coastal regions. And we see these uh, the Philistines coming in the early verses of chapter 17 and rather than having an all-out battle to begin with, we see this one Philistine who is tall and mighty, who's named Goliath, and he challenges Israel to a duel, basically. You send out one of your men, I'll fight, and whoever wins, that'll decide who is subject to who. If I win, if I, Goliath, win, then the Israelites will be subject to me, whereas if your, uh, your person wins, then the Philistines will be subject to the Israelites. And everyone's reaction to this taunting from Goliath is one of fear. You see this in verse 11. After Goliath has made his his stand and has said his peace, we read in verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They were dismayed and terrified. Even King Saul is explicitly mentioned in that verse. The Israelites were dismayed and terrified, and Saul was dismayed and terrified. Remembering Saul is the one who is a head and shoulder above all the rest of the Israelites and was, uh, was exalted before the Israelites. They rejoiced that he was their king because he looked mighty like the kings of other nations. But here, in the face of Goliath, this giant... He looks small as well, and all the Israelites, including Saul, are dismayed and terrified. But is everyone dismayed and terrified? No, there's one who is not, and that is David, this little shepherd boy. He is not dismayed and terrified. What's his reaction? What's David's reaction to this man as he hears him shouting out his taunts to Israel? It's indignation. He's too indignant 
to be afraid of this Philistine. Why is David so indignant? Well, he knows that Goliath is a disgrace upon Israel. We see that in verse 26 when he speaks about uh, Goliath. Verse 26, look with me now in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 26. I encourage you to have a Bible open before you as we look at it together. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine, that's Goliath, and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Hear the indignation in David's voice as he looks at this man and he sees that he is bringing disgrace upon Israel as the Israelites scatter in fear and terror from this man. He sees only disgrace being brought upon Israel. He sees that this man is defying Israel but also God. And that is a word that comes up again and again in this text, and that's the key word that I wanted to look at this morning to some extent, is this way that defying God is brought up in this passage again and again. To defy someone is to bring reproach or to bring shame upon the person that you're defying. And David calls it defiance, the actions of this man Goliath, again and again. We saw it in verse 26 there. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And if you look with me at verse 36, where he's speaking to Saul about the Philistine, he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied, brought reproach upon the armies of the living God. And then in verse 45, where David is actually speaking to the Philistines, so he speaks to the Israelites about the defiance, he speaks to Saul about the defiance, and now he speaks to Goliath about the defiance. David said to the Philistine in verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And Goliath even admits that he defies God. In verse 10, if you flip back with me to the previous page, in verse 10, when Goliath is speaking to the Israelites, then it says, then the Philistine said, this day I defy, that same word that David used, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. I bring reproach upon Israel. I don't care about you. You're a shame. You're a disgrace in the face of my strength. And it wasn't just once that he did this. This was open defiance from Goliath again and again against Israel. How often did he do this? Was it just one day he went out and did this with Israel? No, look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 17. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. This is defiance. Someone who does it again and again and again for 40 days, not just in the morning... Evening as well, 80 times at least, this man came out and defied Israel and, of course, Israel's God. And the Israelites even admit that this is defiance against God and against Israel. In verse 25, when David is talking to them, or just before David is talking to them, verse 25, it says, Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to do what? To defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him and his daughter in marriage and you're exempt from taxes. Here we see that the Israelites also recognise that this man is defying Israel. And so David is motivated to fight because he realises the shame that this man is bringing upon his nation 
but also upon his God. To defy Israel is to defy the God of Israel. And so David is motivated to fight for the name of God, for God's honour, God's glory is what is in the heart of David. He can't be afraid of this man. He is indignant. He has God's glory in mind. And so, of course, he will do something about this man and the shame that he's bringing upon Israel and upon his God. Is David unusual in his reaction here? Well, amongst the Israelites, he was. But if you look through the pages of the Bible, what causes people to fight God's battles, to do great and mighty things, go up against all kinds of odds? What is it? It's a desire for God's name to be honoured, God's name to be glorified. They're about God's glory. And so they can't be afraid of the enemy because their mind is so fixated upon the glory of God that they can't help but do something against whatever is bringing shame and disgrace upon God. Those who are zealous for God's name are not afraid of the enemy, at least in the moment of the fight. And their indignation with enemies causes incredible action. Again and again through the Bible we see this, despite great danger. And what is the greatest example of this? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus himself, indignation for the glory of God was the driving force of all that Jesus of Nazareth did for God. It was a desire for his glory that motivated him to come into this world, to live in this world, and of course to go to the cross. We saw that in that passage that we read from John chapter 17 before. John chapter 17. Did you notice how often it speaks about the glory of God? How often Jesus is about God's glory in that passage? Again and again, the glory of God is mentioned. For example, in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He was about working for God. And why did he work for God? Because it gave God glory. And of course, the greatest act that the Lord Jesus performed for the glory of God was going to the cross. Look at the cross. If you want to see the greatest desire for the glory of God displayed in this world, then look at the greatest act for the glory of God in this world. And what is that act? It's the cross where the Son of God went and died and had the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of his people. So we see again and again in the pages of Scripture that those who are motivated by the glory of God can do great things for the glory of God. And what does that glory result in as they work for God's glory? Well, there's results that come from it. Of course, glory for God eventually comes to God's servant as well. David, by fighting this Philistine, he became a very public figure. Before this, he was just a shepherd boy. He was anointed one, but you can see how his family felt about that anointing that they had witnessed. He was just a shepherd boy. How was he going to get to the throne? Well, yes, last week we saw that he got into the throne room by playing his harp. How far is that going to get you? Here we see his moral indignation about the shame that's been brought upon God and a desire for God's glory, what does that lead him to do? It leads him to fight this great battle in front of all the Israelites there. 
And what does that lead to? Glory for David. His desire for the glory of God, a byproduct, was glory for God's servant, David. And that happened for the Lord Jesus as well. He went to a shameful, horrible death for the glory of God. And what happened to the Lord Jesus? By that greatest act, for the, by the greatest motivation for the glory of God, what happened to Jesus? He's got the most glory now. Of all of the human race, the Lord Jesus, who went the lowest, is now the highest. Seeking the glory of God, what was the byproduct? The glory of the Lord Jesus. And this happens again and again for the servants of God. Motivated for the glory of God, they are glorified, even as God is glorified. And of course, what happens as the servant of God is glorified? Well, another byproduct of seeking the glory of God and doing great things for God is the joy that comes through that glory that is given to his servants. David is characterized by joy. You see this in the Psalms. You go through and you read all the Psalms that have a Psalm of David at the top and you look for joy mentioned in there. Yes, there's pain there as he fights the Lord's battles, but there's also joy mentioned as he seeks God's glory. One of my favourite is Psalm 16 where it says in the King James, in your presence is fullness of joy. Seeking the glory of God, to be in his presence, There is fullness of joy, fullness of joy in the glory of God. And Jesus himself, what happened when he sought the glory of God and then he was glorified? Well, he is filled with joy as well. It's amazing what is said in Hebrews chapter 12, that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. It was a joy for him to serve God and to be glorified by God for his actions. So motivation for God's glory leads to action, great acts. It leads to glory for God and also for God's servant, and it leads to joy for David and for Christ and for all God's servants. We see this again and again in the Bible. And this is a good lesson for us today as well, because we face great Goliaths. We face great Goliaths too. What dangers do we face in this world? Well, we face Satan. We face the world. And we face our own sinful flesh. Again and again, they're the, great, they're the three great dangers we face. Satan, the world, and our own flesh. And we fear these enemies. Like the Israelites ran from Goliath, so often we run from Satan, we run from the world, and we run from our own flesh. We fear what Satan and others may do to us, that we may lose material comforts in this world. They threaten to take them away, and what do we do? We run We run, and we fear what people may say or even think of us. We fear that we'll lose our reputation with people at work or friends or family. And so we run from God. Or we fear that we will lose pleasure if we forsake our sinful flesh. If we don't give into the flesh these pleasures that it offers us, we will lose them, and we won't enjoy them any longer. And so that natural sinful reaction rises in our hearts in the face of Satan, in the face of the world, and the face of our own flesh, and we're afraid and we run and hide rather than fight sin, particularly if it's during a protracted period, a period of 40 days of defiance from Satan or from the world or from your own flesh, morning and night, again and again. How are you going to come against it? 
How are you going to fight back? How are you going to stand firm in the face of such opposition? It's only by being morally outraged that the family name is being attacked, that God's name is being attacked by Satan, by the world, and by your own flesh when it causes you to doubt and to fear in the face of sin and the attacks of the evil one and the world. If we have the glory of God in mind, then that alone will cause us to make a stand in the face of such opposition, in the face of such Goliaths. We will take action, standing firm, fighting back, trusting in God, by being more prayerful, and that's what we'll be starting to look at next week. This week, I wanted to primarily, in in this long reading from 1 Samuel 17, there's so much we could focus on, I wanted to look at, of course, how the action, we look at the action that takes place, and of course, in the Lord Jesus fighting the great Goliath of all time, how he takes action, and how we can take action. But I thought this week particularly, I just wanted to focus on the motivation of David. And we'll look at the action next week. What was the motivation that caused David to act? What was the motivation that caused Jesus to act? Who is the David exemplar, the great David? What was the motivation? It was the glory of God. And that will be the case for us too. If we are to take action for God, it has to be that we see the disgrace that is being brought upon us and upon God by the attacks of the evil one so that we act back and we take action that we should do so. And what does such action result in? What was the lesson for us? It results in glory for God but also glory for us as well. Giving glory to God brings us glory in the face of evil. In that prayer from John chapter 17 of the Lord Jesus just before the cross he says in John 17 22 this marvelous statement I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one isn't this incredible God gives glory to his disciples to his people he gives his glory to us as we stand for his glory and of course the joy that comes to us is our joy as we glorify God. We think we will lose joy if we let Satan, if we let the world, if we let our flesh attack us, we will lose joy and so we give in to them. But instead, we actually do lose joy by giving in to them. We lose the joy of God. In his presence is fullness of joy and we will lose that if we do not act in the face of opposition. Now, this sounds wonderful then, to have a desire for God's glory, to be motivated for God's glory so that we are glorified along with God and experience the great joy that comes for standing firm for God. But how do we cultivate something like that? How do we cultivate a motivation for God's glory? So often when sin comes along, we want to cuddle it rather than spurn it. How do we motivate ourselves to recognise the disgrace that the enemy is bringing upon us and upon our God in leading us astray? How do we cultivate such motivation? Well, it's by having a right view of God. By having a right view of God. Like David did. Why did David want to oppose the one who was bringing reproach, defying God? because he knew God. 
and he loved God. It's interesting how he describes God in verse 26. The last sentence of verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You hear the tone of he's despising this Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the God of Israel? No, the living God. Not a dead God. This God is alive. And then in verse 36, same word. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. He knew God. He knew who God is. And so, of course, he was motivated for God's glory. He knew that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so, of course, I want to fight for him. I know God, and so, of course, I will fight back against those who are bringing reproach on such a God. We can't have a holy indignation for someone that we don't know. Is that the reason you don't have indignation? When sin comes along, you let it waft over you because you don't know God, and so you're not indignant in that moment. I saw this video on the internet. You all see all kinds of videos on the internet, don't you? But this was on a news website, and uh, it came up about this man in the States, in Florida, where they have an alligator problem. Uh, well, they had a problem, and the pro way to solve the problem was by protecting the alligators, and so now the alligators are everywhere. And, uh, and he was walking through a park, and he had a little puppy, and the puppy ran near the water, and this alligator came up out of the water and grabbed his puppy. What did the man do? He ran over, they got it on tape, and you can watch it on the internet if you just Google this, ran over to the alligator, prized his jaws open, and pulled his puppy out. Now, why did the man do that? Alligators are dangerous. Why would you go over and pull the jaws of an alligator apart? Because he loved his puppy. And he knew that dog. Would he have done the same thing for a stray dog? If he was just in the park and a little dog was wandering, wandering around near the water's edge and then this alligator came up and snatched it and dragged it into the water? Would he have run over and pulled the jaws apart for that random dog? Maybe if he really loves dogs. But I'm inclined to think that he probably wouldn't have. Why did he pull the jaws apart on that alligator? Because he knew the dog. He loved the dog. So he was indignant. How dare that alligator take my dog? How dare it? It's bringing disgrace upon me and my dog if he takes off with it. So of course I'm going to run over there and tackle that alligator and save my puppy. And should be the same for us a thousand, a million fold, a billion fold when it comes to God. When an enemy attacks God's people, when an enemy attacks us as one of God's people, if we know God and how wonderful he is, of course, of course, we will be motivated to remove whatever disgrace it is that is bringing, is bringing whatever disgrace is coming upon God's name and upon his people. We need to know God better if we are to be motivated for his glory. It's only as we know how wonderful he is that we'll be motivated to work for his glory. Now, how do you get to know God better? How do you know him better? Well, it's by the scriptures. 
by the scriptures. As you read the scriptures again and again, you see again and again in increasing measure how wonderful God is, how awesome he is, how loving and merciful and kind and just and good he is. And of course you're motivated. Of course you're indignant. You're not afraid of sin. You're not afraid of Satan. You're not afraid of the world. You're indignant that they would dare attack your God, the living God. Know your scriptures and, of course, you will know God and know what it is to work for his glory in the face of attacks. Read books about the attributes of God. One of my favourite books on the attributes of God is a fairly lengthy term. It's basically a life's work. Stephen Sharnock's The Attributes of God is a big, fat volume. goes through all the attributes of God, looks at each of the attributes and how they work in, in God's work of creation, God's work of providence, the way he sustains all things, and God's work of redemption. Just teasing out who God is. If you read a book like that, it's hard not to be indignant when you see people bringing shame upon the God of Scripture. And sing songs. If you want to cultivate a motivation for God's glory, sing songs that speak about God's glory. Or just memorise them. You don't need to sing them if you've got an awful voice like me. Just memorise some of these songs and recite them to yourself or sing them privately so they don't... You don't put other people off. Get songs like, How Great Thou Art. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand has made. I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then what happens? Then sings my soul, my Saviour God to thee, how great thou art. You sing about his creation in your heart, his creating work. Then, of course, you're motivated for his glory. And songs like that, they don't just speak about the creating work of God. They speak about the redeeming work of God. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul. I can't help it. My saviour God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. You want to be motivated for the glory of God? Then memorise a few songs about God himself. And when the attacks of Satan and the world come your way, and your own flesh even seeks to bring disgrace and says, just do this little sin. It's not a big deal. You'll say, no, that brings shame upon my God. And so, of course, I will not, because I know my God and I love my God. So we need to have a right view of God if we are to be motivated for his glory. But we also need to be motivated by having a right view of the enemy, I think, as well, like David did. How did David talk about Goliath? As I said before, he talked about him as this uncircumcised Philistine. Who is he that he should defy the armies of God? And we need to have that same attitude. We can see an enemy as big, like Goliath, and armoured, like Goliath, and bold, like Goliath, or we can see him as small, weak, and pathetic, like David did. We need to have a right view of our enemies. What's a right view of Satan? When he comes whispering doubts in our minds, we can say, liar, not to be trusted. That's who he is. Murderer, vicious animal, a dragon, a snake, a roaring lion, that's who he is. But he's also a defeated animal, defeated at the cross. He's weak and pathetic. And so, of course, I'm not scared of him. 
when he brings shame upon my God. And we should have a right view of the world. What's a right view of the world? It's misguided, lost, blind. These people who attack you at work, these friends who attack you, these family members within your own home who attack you for being a Christian, they're not scary. They're pathetic. They're blind. They're lost. We should have a right view of them, which will then lead us to glorify God in that moment of attack. And what's the right view of our flesh? Well, it's pleasures that it offers you are sick, dissatisfying, and guilt-ridden. That's a right view of the flesh. And so when it encourages you to bring reproach upon God, of course you dismiss it because you see it for what it really is, weak and pathetic. The man who rescued that puppy in that video, why did he do it? Well, he loved the dog. But he also assessed the alligator, I'm sure, as well, and thought, I can beat that. If you watch the video, it's not the biggest of alligators. I mean, there's alligators and then there's alligators. And he saw that this alligator, I can get those jaws apart and rescue my puppy. Is that our attitude when we see the enemy of God? We size it up and say, with God, I can overcome that. If God is for me, who can be against me, as Paul says in Romans 8? Of course I can beat it and remove the shame, the reproach that is coming upon God. So are you a David or are you a Saul? Are you a David who is morally outraged when you see the enemy defy the Lord? Or are you a Saul who looks good but is often found hiding in the baggage? Is that you? You care more about your honour than God's honour. You care more about your material comforts, pleasures and reputation and power than God's reputation. If that is you, if you find in your heart this morning you're a sore, repent. Ask God to give you a knowledge of him so that you seek his glory rather than your own. Or maybe you're an Eliab. We didn't really talk about Eliab much. He's the older brother of David back in verse 28. And he tells David to pipe down when he's asking lots of questions. Are you an Eliab who's embarrassed by those who are for God's glory, who are around you? They're too zealous. Do you criticise someone who's always on about the glory of God? I heard recently that someone says that they knew another church where people would call them firecrackers. The people in the church, when someone zealous came along for God's glory, they call them firecrackers. You're going to be one of these firecrackers that pops up, makes a lot of bangs, and then you'll eventually fizzle out. And we're just going to let you go, pop off a few times, and then we'll, we'll see. You'll fizzle out eventually. Are you an Eliab? that wants to encourage people to pipe down and not be so much on about God's glory because they're putting you to shame, that you're not zealous for God's glory, that you're not interested in God's honour as you should be. If that is you, repent of holding others back and start running with them for God's glory. Or even worse, are you a Goliath? You're a Goliath. We like to see ourselves as David in this passage, but in reality, we're far often more like a Goliath defying the living God by doubting and questioning and even ridiculing God. That is, you realise how puny you are in comparison to God. One swift rock to the head and you are down. Repent of your defiance. The blood of Christ is the only way you can be reconciled with God. For all those acts of defiance, all that ridiculing of God, Repent now, trust in Jesus' death for you to cover all your acts of defiance. 
Let us all be Davids. Let us all be Christ's, anointed ones, following the footsteps of the great Christ, seeking God's glory in the face of those who defy him, growing in knowledge of God and knowledge of our enemies so that we see them for what they really are and fighting for them. There is no greater motive to serve God, to fight against sin, than the glory of God. It will cause fear to fly. You won't even be afraid. You'll just be indignant about the disgrace coming upon God's name. It will cause you to take bold action and it will cause increasing glory for God but also for yourself and increasing joy for our Saviour and also for us. In the face of danger, are we going to tremble with fear like the Israelites did or are we going to tremble with indignation for God's glory and eventually tremble with his glory as we act for him, and then tremble with joy for what we've seen God do through us for his glory. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's speak with God. Heavenly Father, you are the God of all glory. Forgive us for not viewing sin as defiance against you. We thank you that Jesus fought for your glory and that he has glorified us in him by his work at the cross. Help us to view you rightly and the enemy rightly and so be motivated to fight against sin for your glory and even for our glory and our joy that is set before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.